Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So, imagine you're an actor, like David Oyelowo, and you're making a movie with one of the biggest action superstars ever, Tom Cruise. Like every action movie, there's a bunch of explosions and stunts and car chases, and of course, Tom Cruise does his own stunts. So, when his character is in a car chase with your character, I mean, it's Tom Cruise. Things get real. And um, there was a a moment where on a slick street, he had to uh, come to a screeching halt next to my car. We were meant to be parallel to each other, give each other a death stare before he zooms off. And I kid you not, Tom crashed into my car three times. And the director called Cut after the third one and came up to me and said, yeah, we're going to move on because I just caught a flash of your wife in widow weeds. How'd your husband die? Oh, Tom Cruise killed him. It's Bullseye. (laughs) This week on Bullseye, David Oyelowo. He was born in London. He spent his childhood bouncing between the UK and Nigeria. His dad's side of the family actually comes from Nigerian royalty. But come on, don't make a big deal about it. It's a little bit like being the king of Sherman Oaks. It's not It's not really as um, impressive as it may sound. But, you know, it's, 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 still, it's still decent. I'm not the king of anything. Then Heather Graham. You know her from Boogie Nights, Swingers, License to Drive... Dozens and dozens of other movies. She's been acting for over 30 years now. She's just written and directed her first ever feature film, which, she says, didn't come naturally. And it didn't even enter my head that I wanted to write and direct, but I used to find, like, director men really attractive, and I think I'd think, oh, I want to date a director, you know? And I thought directors were so cool. And then one day someone said to me, like, maybe you don't necessarily want to date them. You just want to be a director. And I think as a woman, I didn't even know I could, like, that was an option, so I would just be attracted to men who were doing maybe what I wanted to be doing. But I didn't even realize I wanted to do it until now. (laughs) And finally, I'll tell you about the charming, heartwarming story of a police detective on the trail of a murderer who chopped a woman into pieces and put her back together in the shape of a star of David. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is David Oyelowo. David is an incredibly versatile actor. He cut his teeth at the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. He had smaller parts on British TV and in movies like The Help and Jack Reacher. Then he broke out in 2014. He took on probably one of the toughest roles ever. He starred as Martin Luther King in Selma. As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, for it is determined for me by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. Those that have gone before us say, no more, no more. That means protest. That means march. That means disturb the peace. That means jail. That means risk. And that is hard. Now he's starring in a movie that, and and I think I'm being fair when I say this, could not be more different than the Academy Award-nominated biopic Selma. It's an action comedy called Gringo. David stars as Harold Soyinka, kind of a middle manager at a big pharmaceutical company in Chicago. The company decides to get in on the medical marijuana business in a big way by manufacturing a weed pill. So they send Harold to Mexico to deliver the formula. I don't think I'm spoiling much when I tell you that things do not go as planned for our man Harold. Before long, he's swept into Mexico's criminal underground. He gets kidnapped. He gets shot at. He gets in a car chase with a cartel hitman. And the whole time, Oyelowo's character is basically barely aware of what's going on. And he spends pretty much the entire movie freaking out. It's goofy and funny. And there's a lot of great explosions. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the beginning of the movie. In this scene, he's in Mexico, and he's on the phone with his bosses, played by Charlize Theron and Joel Edgerton. 
He's told them he's been kidnapped by a cartel, and his captors want $5 million to set him free. And his bosses are wondering if they can, you know, economize a little. I just told you they're going to kill me. Yes! Bargaining. I'm in business. That's what I do. He walks through warehouses, put little check marks on boxes. That's what you do. Don't be mean. What's that about the policy? Harold, I'm just going to spit this out. There is no policy. What? We had to make cutbacks. Uh, there was a lot going out. We didn't have a lot coming in. I had to let the policy lapse. You kept sending me down here with no insurance? Yeah, well, just for a little while. Why didn't you tell me? What a f***ing crybaby. There's not enough time in every day for us to tell you all the things we do not need to tell you, Harold. No, 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 no! <laughs> David Oyelowo, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. That's him actually burning himself <laughs> in the wrist with a cigarette rather than just pretending to. That's right. He gets, like, caught up in the moment, I guess. He's, this is an intense dude in an, in an intense situation. A long series of intense situations. Yes. yes. Have you done, like, a? I mean, there are... A fair number of like straight up action scenes in this. There's no like jumping and shooting guns sideways, but right. had you done that before? Um, I've done a bit of it before. I did a, a, a spy show that was called Spooks in the UK. It was called MI5 here, and we did a fair bit of uh, shooting guns uh, while diving sideways in that. But the thing I love about Gringo is that the the action has real jeopardy to it. You know, there's no my character certainly. There's nothing cool about the way he uh, handles himself in these very precarious situations. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of fun. In Imagining what it would actually be like to be being tossed around in a car the way I do severally in the film. We, our office is on a street where that is often shut down for filming, you know. Right. And because it's a street that's often shut down for filming, a lot of times they're doing car stuff on the street. Right. And when they're doing stuff with cars and things that go bang, yeah. I never believe like no amount of watching it and thinking that like there's an assistant director and a stunt coordinator and a props manager all of whom have done this 75 times none of that convinces me that those people are safe there are real elements of danger i mean you do everything you can to ensure that it's safe but one of the uh one of the unforgettable experiences i had doing some action stuff that involved cars was a film i did called jack reacher with tom cruise who as the world knows insists on doing his own stunts which means when you're in a car chase with him you've got to be in that car as well and um there was a, a moment where on a slick street he had to uh come to a screeching halt next to my car. We were meant to be parallel to each other, give each other a death stare before he zooms off. And I kid you not, Tom crashed into my car three times. And the director called Cut after the third one and came up to me and said, yeah, we're going to move on because I just caught a flash of your wife in widow weeds. <laughs> I thought, okay, that is an image I do not want in your head, let alone in reality. Let's call it a day. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about your life. You were born in the UK yeah. to uh, parents who had uh, emigrated from Nigeria, immigrated to the UK. Yes, does yes. that, sound, does that seem like you're the right? right. I think okay. you're on the right track. Uh, and uh, you lived there until your young kid then left and went with your parents back to Nigeria. Yeah. What led your parents to the UK in the first place? Um, education. My dad really, uh, <clears throat> well, Nigerians generally, certainly of my dad's generation, educationally, you, the UK was the place you go. A bit like in America, it's, it's Yale or Harvard. You know, for Nigerians, you wanted to go to the UK. You wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And, and so even here in the United States, I think Nigerians are like maybe the, I think it may literally be the most highly educated immigrant group in the United States, yeah. certainly among them. That is correct. And, and, and yeah, it's academia is 
the zenith. It's the height of achievement and it's bragging rights for days uh, in, a, in any given family. So that was one of the things. But also my dad was from a royal family in Nigeria. My mom was a commoner and um, their marriage was about to be frowned upon by his family and so they effectively eloped to the UK. You said your dad was from a royal family practically. What did that mean in his and your life? Um, practically speaking, it was uh, basically bragging rights because I grew up in the UK, where, of course, we have a very discernible notion of what the royal family are, whereas in Nigeria, it's a little bit like being the king of Sherman Oaks. It's not its not really as um, impressive as it may sound, but, you know, it's, 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 still, it's still decent. What? Uh, how long were you in the UK the first time around? Um, so I was born in Oxford, uh, and then up until the age of two, uh, we were there, and then we moved to London, and then we moved to Nigeria when I was six, and we lived in Lagos, Nigeria, till I was thirteen. Was there a reason that you knew as a six-year-old that you were? moving to a different continent? Yeah. I, I, it was something that my parents shielded me from, but uh, the UK was, London in particular, was a tough place for a a black family uh, to, to make headway in the early 80s. Uh, my dad had terrible things like coffee thrown in his face and he would be spat at when he'd go for job interviews. It was, you know, it was bad. And um, I guess he thought, what am I doing? You know, I, I, I come from a well-to-do family in Nigeria. I'm raising these children here. We could have a better life in Nigeria. So that was part of the impetus for moving. But very quickly after we moved, well, a, a, about six, seven years after we moved, a, a military government came in, which was highly corrupt. And uh, so we were, we were packing our bags again. What was it like for you as a six-year-old to change your life so dramatically? I mean, had you had you spent time in Nigeria before then? Had you none, like, gone to visit relatives? None at all. I only knew the UK. Um, I had a lot of we had a lot of relatives who would come and stay with us um, in London. Um, so I had a, a little bit more perspective, you know, of, of effectively where my family were from as a result, but. I loved it. I really did. You know, it, it, I think there's a lot to be said, and certainly it's it's been formative for me to live in a place where you are the majority as opposed to the minority. And, um, you know, having now lived both in the UK and now in America for over a, a decade, um, both places I've loved living, but I really took with me and have taken with me um, the self-esteem and the self-awareness that comes from being in a society, in a community, in a culture where every opportunity at your disposal is genuinely yours for the taking. I think that is different, you know, living in the UK and in America as a black person. And it, it, it is, has informed how I approach life. I think a lot of folks imagine that the desire to be an actor is driven by the desire to basically to perform hmm. and I think that's I mean that's great that can mm -hmm. be really cool mm -hmm. but it seems to me like a, a lot of folks who are actors also have had experiences that force them outside of themselves personally mm. and socially mm. um, that make them see themselves as enacting their mm -hmm. sense of self in real life Right, And I would imagine that having had these two big dislocating experiences mm. of moving from the UK to Nigeria, then moving from Nigeria back to the UK, mm. must have led you to just have some understanding of like what it is to be performing socially. You know what I mean? Like to make a place for yourself with others as a choice rather than as a, uh, you know, a passive or whatever thing. Yeah, I mean, at a, the, the, what it gave me is at a very young age, I had seen a lot of humanity. I had 
lived in London, I had lived in Lagos, two very different cities, vibrant cities, full of colour in every possible sense of that word, and uh, full of syndromes and situations and difficult situations and positive situations that really go to the heart of who we are as human beings. And so when I chose to be an actor, I really had experienced way more than actually a, a lot of kids, my my teenage kids my age, uh, would have experienced certainly in London at that time. And so, you know, when you're watching Shakespeare for the first time or Greek tragedy for the first time, that's the amazing thing about growing up in the UK is the, the extraordinary theatre you're exposed to right on your doorstep. And I was able to watch these amazing productions uh, with incredible actors and it just spoke to me. And so for me... You know, being an actor at that stage was was more about feeling like I had something to express through storytelling and I had something to offer. You know, I always saw it as an act of service to in some way um, evoke humanity and present it to us as human beings. Doing theater training, especially classical theater training, mm. involves a lot of refining your relationship to your own voice. Mm. Did you feel like you had a different relationship to your own voice than uh, the other folks in acting school or whatever because you were such an experienced uh, code switcher, to use some mm. jargon, because you were a three-time mm. immigrant? Mm. Um, oh, boy. Really, really good question. Um, yes. I mean... Uh, Code switching is actually something that has been a theme in my acting life. It's been something that has been in a lot of the roles I've gravitated towards, probably as you've just now revealed to me, because it is a part of of, of who I have been. You know, even being at drama school, I grew up in a, in a very working class environment, in a tiny little apartment with my parents and three brothers. But I went to a, a drama school where, you know, uh, Shakespeare and, and all, all these kind of plays, certainly the way we were taught, you diction was key. And so um, a lot of people who had regional accents had to ditch them in order to be able to... This language that is five times the vocabulary that we use to get your gums around it, you really needed to be as clear as possible. And so, yeah, there was a degree of code switching there whereby my brothers, for instance, have a very different accent to mine. They have very London accents. And I think between drama school and the RSC for three years, you know, my accent is now plummy, shall we say, or posh or whatever. And so, but I can in a trice be in North London and be completely chameleonic and dive into that world in a way that is imperceptible. So that has been something that for me has played real, real dividends. You know, even in Gringo, the character I play in that as a Nigerian immigrant, that's a byproduct of, you know, those are my uncles, that's my dad, those are my cousins, those are people who I know but are very much not my, uh, the way I walk into life every given day, but I know who those people are inside out. I uh, want to play a clip from a television show, and I'm just going to apologize to the audience for being a corny public radio dude for loving this television show so much. <laughs> um, but I really love this television show. It was called the Number One Ladies Detective Agency. Oh, yes. <laughs> this was a show that starred uh, Jill Scott as a Botswanan, right? Am I yes, remember yes, that correctly? Exactly. Um, a sort of independent detective lady. Yes. Um, and you were in the pilot of the show, and you know you've been well known for playing some very understated characters or characters who at least in their private lives are understated yes and this is quite the <laughs> opposite of that are you are you doing a, a Botswana accent in this yes scene? I am. I am. so uh in this case uh on the show, Jill Scott is trying to figure out. Uh, she's She's been approached by a wife who thinks her husband's having an affair. Um, she goes to a bar. She's snooping around. Right. And your character, whose name is Kremlin Busong. Yes. <laughs> and you are, you know, you're like 
Oh, he's the man. You're grooving on Gyrating. Him. Yes. Pumping the air perpetually yeah. is what that character did. Let's listen. Do you have a wife, Ra? Because I'm not leaving a bar with a man who is a married man. I love a woman with values. All my life I've been saving myself for such a woman. Beautiful lady. I am as single as Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my goodness. It actually sounds really bad when it's just a recording. <laughs> because you can't tell how crazy this dude is. Oh, I had fun doing that. I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to play many sort of outlandish, big, garish characters. Like that. That was one of the uh, the only times I've been able to do it on film. We'll have more with David Oyelowo when we return from a quick break, plus the one and only Heather Graham. Stay tuned. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A. There are lots of places to debate today's issues if you don't mind getting attacked for speaking your mind or asking a simple question. But 1A is different. You'll find the 1A podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows. All with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Oyelowo, the award-winning actor. His newest movie, Gringo, is out this week. When you moved to the United States, why did you move to the United States? Because all my heroes, when it came to acting, were doing what they were doing here. Um, I had people who I admired in the UK in terms of black actors, but they just weren't being afforded the opportunities that signified the zenith of what I think it is to be an actor. Um, And so it was Denzel Washington. It was Sidney Poitier. It was Will Smith. And... um, I had been given some really great opportunities in the UK, but it became evident that I was about to start hitting this glass ceiling pretty hard and probably perpetually. And so, you know, my wife and I and our two kids at the time, we've since had another two here in the States, decided, you know, it's now or never. If our kids get much older, it's going to be harder to extricate ourselves. And so we bet on ourselves, packed our bags and uh, made our way over. When you moved to the United States and already had two kids, were you thinking about what your kids' experience would be like as African-Americans? Yeah, big time, of course. And um, it was a real cause for pause, as it were, because um, race relations in the U.K., have all the complexity and all the challenges that we have here, there are just nuanced differences. So my kids, who are mixed race, would not be uh, deemed black in the UK. They are mixed race. They are as much white as they are black. Whereas here, you are you are African-American, you are black, you are, you know, and so there are all sorts of identity issues that my wife and I had to think about, not because being deemed black or being deemed mixed race is better than the other, just it's like I had when I was younger. It's going to be something to navigate, navigate the fact that perceptions of who or what you are differ depending on the country you have been brought up in thus far to the country we are now emigrating to. So that was something that we had to um, just think about. But the thing that we couldn't have anticipated is in the wake of all these um, terrible examples of police brutality, having to talk to our children about how to conduct themselves around the police in a way to make sure that they don't get A, get in trouble, B, get shot. I mean, th- those are things that um, 
have been very challenging to have to realize one has to uh, talk to your kids about when you know you have lovely children who just cannot imagine a world in which they would be getting in trouble with the police. But, you know, there is just a disproportionate uh, amount of challenge towards young black youth in this country that means that you just got to acknowledge it in raising your kids. You've played a lot of African-American characters and worked with a lot of African-American artists. Mm. Um, when you're hanging out on the set, do you compare notes about <laughs> the experiences of your, of, of your cultural groups? Um, less on set and more in just in terms of my personal relationships with people, you know, over dinner, over, you, you know, I mean, I've lived here long enough now that I feel uh, subsumed into the culture in a very real way. I've also had this crazy journey of having to learn a lot of not just American history, but African-American history. You know, if you do films like Red Tales about the Tuskegee Airmen or The Butler, you know, where my father in the film goes through five, six, seven presidents um, as a butler, all playing Martin Luther King or, um, um, you know, The Help or, or Lincoln. You know, these are, you know, I worked out the other day that I've literally had to study 150 years of um, Af African-American history, you know, from Lincoln and the uh, uh, the 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 proclamation in 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 1865 all the way through to playing Dr. King in 1965 all the way through to, you know, in the Butler we show President Obama becoming president in 2008. And I take research for these projects very, very seriously. So I really dive into the history. And so even to become an American, which I now am an American citizen, you have to study what it is that America is by way of its history. So I probably know more of American history and culture than I even do Nigerian now because of 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 those filmic experiences and 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 what my children are now going through be, being raised as Americans effectively. So yeah, you know, it's it's something I I I love um, about this country. It's it's history, and I, and I really deem a lot of my African American friends as you know brothers and sisters to me in a very real sense. Uh, was there ever a time that you felt? Uh, of two minds about playing African-American characters? Uh, only in the same way that you are in two minds about facing any challenge um, as an actor. It's the same thing if you're going to play Othello, if you're going to play Henry VI. I never really had what maybe I think is what you're referring to of should I as a Brit of Nigerian parentage, should I play someone like Dr. Martin Luther King? I've always felt that um, the miracle of what acting affords any actor is not playing yourself, going as far away from yourself as possible, because that's where you find humanity is not a projection of your own humanity, but a universal humanity. Um, so, you know, I'm all for Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher, as long as she does it well. And, you know, I, I would hope that any role I contemplate will be judged more on the basis of how I execute it rather than necessarily where I'm actually from. I feel like when I was in acting school and they were trying to convince me to connect to my own emotional experience so mm. that I could produce an analog on stage as right. an actor, even that... Even not the second step, the first step. Right. I was like, well, hold on. <laughs> I have spent the last 17 years since I gained self-awareness avoiding engaging with my own actual emotional state. And you want me to do it on purpose? <laughs> yeah. Look, I think... I There are different techniques. Everyone is different. Everyone accesses emotion differently. I personally am not of that school. I'm not of that person, of, of that school of thinking whereby dredge up all the pain and hurt and all of that. that you Because, look, 
my pain is different from my character's pain. For me, go to the character. Empathize as much as you can with the circumstances under which this character finds themselves and trust that your compassion as a human being, as an actor, will enable you to access some of what they must be going through. That, for me, is what I do. And that's also the way to not give samey performances because if every time I'm doing an emotional scene I think of when my cat died when I was seven I I have to believe that it's 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 not going to be the right emotion to have for both the serial killer and the civil rights leader you know I've got to find my way into that human being and that that but that's not to say it's not effective for other people. I personally don't subscribe to that that school of thought. Do you ever take your work home? There's this thing that you're supposed to <laughs> wipe your emotional feet at the door yeah. on the way in and out of acting, right? It depends on the role. It depends <laughs> on the role. I, I, I couldn't do that with Dr. King. I stayed in character for three months, and it was necessitous for that role. I couldn't... You know what? I, I had the privilege of doing a scene with Daniel Day-Lewis, who's my favorite actor of all time, in Lincoln. And I saw palpably in front of me the commitment that he had engaged in to play that role. And it gave me the template that I needed to, to, to play Dr. King. And I realized there were just some roles that are going to cost a bit more than others. Um, that was one. A film I did called Nightingale was another, where you had someone with a dissociative identity disorder and he, who had seven different characters, you know, twirling around in his head at any given time. I chose to move, even though we shot that in L.A., I chose to move out of my home. I didn't want that near my kids. And I stayed in the character the whole time because there's something about someone who has seven different permutations of themselves swirling around their head that there's going to be a manifestation that that has when that is perpetually the case day in, day out. And what it meant for me in that situation is that I never second-guessed any choices I was making as an actor while I was portraying that guy. Whereas if I'm suddenly David and then I'm the guy who has seven different, you know, people going around his head. I just don't know how to tell the truth of that. And so, but that wasn't required on Jack Reacher when, when Tom was crashing into me three times. I was very, very much able to snap into David very quickly uh, under those circumstances. So I think, you know, different roles require different things. I mean, if you want to go full Daniel Day-Lewis, I got a buddy here in L.A. who knows how to make shoes. <laughs> If you need to, you know what? He's my hero. I may just go see your buddy just so that I can feel hemispherically that I touched the hem of Daniel's garment. Daniel Ayelowo, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for. You don't know how much that yeah. means to me that you called uh, me Daniel. David Ayelowo, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. David Oyelowo. His new movie, Gringo, is out in theaters March 9th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Heather Graham. She's an actor, of course. She's been working for over 30 years now. You might have seen her debut in the 1988 smash hit, License to Drive, alongside Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. Maybe you were a fan of Swingers or Drugstore Cowboy. She starred in both of those, too. She was even on Twin Peaks for a while. Her latest movie is Half Magic. She stars in it, but it's also the first film she wrote and directed. Graham plays Honey, a woman who is trying to establish herself in show business as a development executive. She gets a job as an assistant for an action star, named Peter, who appreciates her company as long as she doesn't criticize his work. Honey and her friends, who are played by Angela Kinsey and Stephanie Beatrice, team up and decide to make something of their lives. Together, they find the ultimate revenge is in living well. All it takes is love, self-respect, and possibly a little bit of new-agey witchcraft. Half Magic is about the mistakes we make in love, and about the sexism that's in our whole society, but especially in Hollywood. It's a comedy, but it's also very sincere. And Graham says that a lot of the outrageous, awful stuff that dudes say in the movie is pulled from real life. 
Here's a little bit from Half Magic. In this scene, Honey and her boyfriend Peter are arguing about what makes a good film. I want to be a writer. I know you want to be a writer, and in due time, really. Your writing is great. It's fresh and very unique, but you're bogging yourself down talking about stupid You know what? You, you, nobody wants to hear about, about women's stories, all right? If you want to make a film, you got to talk about a man. you got to write about a man. That's what you have to do. Well, can you read my script? It's called The Year of My Yoni. It's about a woman who goes on a spiritual quest to find happiness and to learn about her yoni. Yoni? I don't even know what that is. Is that like a new way of saying vagina? It sounds like a porno. I'm not into it. Look, a guy bashing another guy's skull in with a baseball bat that's what sells. Um, well, I could change the title to The Ultraviolent Yoni. <laughs> Heather Graham, welcome to Bullseye. I'm, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And congratulations on uh, writing and directing this film. Um, Thank you. I So the the other day I had on the show Chris, uh, Kristen Anderson Lopez, uh, along with her husband Bobby Lopez, and they are songwriters. They wrote... Um, uh, this year, they're nominated for an Oscar for a song from Coco. And wow. when I was talking to Kristen, she told me um, before she was a songwriter, she was an actress. And she said something that really affected my way uh, of thinking about her work and, and that of others, which was she said, you know, I became an actress because I it was expected that if I wanted to work in theater, in the entertainment industry, I would become an actress because I'm a woman. Um, yeah. And not be that she didn't want to be an actress or anything, but just... But we don't have a lot of role models of like, oh, there's a female writer-director, there's a female producer. I mean, there's some, but there's not a lot. So it's not something little girls dream of, like, look at all these people that have done it before me. It's, you know, oh, let me break into a business where there's barely any women. There's 7% female directors in Hollywood out of 100%, 7%. Did you uh, think that you wanted to become an actress like since you – I mean, you became literally a professional actress as a teenager. But did you think that you were going to be an actress from, you know, uh, the day you were six years old and you were the the ugly duckling in the school play? Um, well, I did start um... – acting in the school plays, I was Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, and that definitely was fun. And I used to make up fantasy games with my friends and my sister where we would pretend to be different people, and I'd go, okay, this is the story. So I guess that was the early day of kind of coming up with ideas and being a writer-director. But then, yeah, as a, as a, as a teenager... Um, it wasn't a road like, oh, there's so many women writing and directing. I definitely like, watch movies and go, I want to be the actor. I want to be the actor in that movie. And it didn't even enter my head that I wanted to write and direct. But I used to find like director men really attractive. And I think I'd think, oh, I want to date a director, you know. And I thought directors were so cool. And then one day someone said to me, like, maybe you don't necessarily want to date them. You just want to be a director. And I think <laughs> as a woman, I didn't even know I could like, that was an option. So I would just be attracted to men who were doing maybe what I wanted to be doing. But I didn't even realize I wanted to do it until now. <laughs> I mean, what about acting when you were an actor? Because you didn't grow up in a show business family, although you ended up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, um, you know, maybe the extended suburbs of Los Angeles. Your father was uh, worked at the FBI. And so you had a childhood where, you know, you lived a bunch of different places, depending on where he was assigned. And, you know, it it doesn't sound like... Uh, it doesn't sound like you were like definitely headed uh, to the bright lights of Hollywood. No, I mean, no one in my family had ever done something like this. And um, it's kind of and it's amazing to even ever succeed as an actress. I mean, the percentages of people that actually can make a living acting, it's it's I'm, I feel ex extremely lucky that I've been able to work as an actress my whole adult life. So when did you decide that it was like important enough to you that you were going to you know, stop being a normal teenager and start going to auditions. Well, I think you're, you know, when you said, oh, you're the ugly, or the, you ugly kid. I mean, I was an awkward kid at school. I, I want to no, be not clear. that I wasn't ugly. I, no, but I think I you said it's that a, just because it's a play that you might do in <laughs> elementary school. I wasn't suggesting anything. No, but I'm saying that. that is the truth. I felt like I was an awkward, geeky kid. I didn't feel pretty. And I thought, this is how I can distinguish myself is to act in these plays. And I remember I auditioned for Damn Yankees. And I think I was 14. But I auditioned to play Lola, who's like the devil's like... I don't know, prostitute. You know, she's kind of like a femme fatale. And I was not at all, no guys had ever asked me out. I was not 
you know, whatever. But playing that part, I felt like, oh, I can be this woman who's like attractive. And yeah, I think it was a way I was shy. And it was a way to get attention and express myself. Was it different when you weren't auditioning for your drama teacher and your drama nerd buddies? uh, And instead, you were in like a weird conference room in uh, Culver City? Well, there's another factor, which is just that, okay, I was nerdy in school. I was in advanced placement classes with all the other really smart kids. I had net gear for a certain point. Guys weren't really asking me out. So I would go on auditions and I'd be like the cheer, the beautiful cheerleader. So in this alternate reality of me driving into Los Angeles and auditioning for roles, I was actually reading for like beautiful girls that guys wanted to date, which was not my reality in my high school. Did one of them encroach on the other? I mean, did people in your high school notice that you were uh, getting work as an actress? Well, um, the first movie I ever did was License to Drive with Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. And I got that movie when I was 17. And I think it came out when I was 18. So I was basically graduating high school. And I remember a lot of the guys, like guys that I thought were cute that would not really pay attention to me, suddenly were like, wow, maybe I should have paid attention to her. (laughs) (laughs) And I think some of it had to do with the fact also I was not confident. You know, I was insecure. You know, it was also my personality. But, yeah, I think people were like, wow, maybe I should have actually talked to that girl. Let's play a clip of you in License to Drive. <laughs> Thank goodness I anticipated we might talk you about this. this. That's so funny. I sure do. So um, it, you played Mercedes Lane was the name of your character. And in this scene, you're sitting on the hood of a Cadillac. Um, you have uh, you're sitting with your love interest in the film. You're on the top of a hill. Uh, and <laughs> Corey Haim. Yeah, exactly. And you are uh, looking out over Los Angeles. Hey, it's amazing up here. How'd you ever find this place? Someone I know used to take me here. Not a boyfriend. My father used to take me here to, to show me how beautiful the world could be if you could step away and see it at a distance. Now, Heather, I have to say, uh, I was I I was a little too young to be in the Target <laughs> demo of this movie, but there is this group of people who are like eight years older than I am, or something, mm-hmm. uh, who were who like this is the most important movie that ever came out. As far if as if you were the right age when this movie came out, then it was it made an impression on you. So what was that like for you to be one of the stars of this movie? Well, um, it was amazing because I was awkward. No guys like me. Suddenly I'm starring in a movie where I'm the beautiful love interest. Are you kidding? This was the dream come true. I was driving onto the 20th Century Fox lot and working with movie stars. My brain was blown. But you were also like, this was the height of the Corys. Yeah. Uh, they were the stars of this. And from what, I mean, I I wasn't there, but from what I understand, their world was completely insane at the time. I mean, I did not know that they were being molested. And that is so disturbing. And I think it's so cool that people feel open to talk about these stories now. Because I was looking at them like, these p- two guys are movie stars. Their lives must be perfect. They're so successful. They've been in all these films that I admire. They're making all this money. And then, like, behind the scenes, like, they're doing all these drugs. And there were all these creepy people taking advantage of them. It just, it's really disturbing. More of my conversation with Heather Graham when we return from a break. Still to come, she'll tell me how acting for over three decades informed her technique as a director. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy Award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. What's unique about the human experience and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Heather Graham. She just made her debut as a writer and director in her new film, Half Magic. 
It's out now. One of the things that I feel like I learned from all of the stories that came out of that have come out of the Me Too movement over the last few months is like the extent to which show business is this world where everyone is making everything up as they go. Um, I don't mean in a literal sense of like telling fictional stories, but like there's. Uh, you know the the power dynamics are like shifting insanely wildly and uh every actor and actress has to ask for work often and nobody is confident of their place and of how things work and so um people who are at a broader disadvantage like you know they're women in a world where men have much more power than women are like just trying to figure out how to get by, like trying to figure out how to do this thing that they really care about um, and get by, uh, you know, work and stuff. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, on one hand, you're like, okay, I want to make great art. I want to do my job well. And then you're like, and I want to make enough money to support myself, uh, you know, for the rest of my life. And that's hard as an actress. And just like that, that when somebody is being as monstrous as, you know, the stories that we've heard about Harvey Weinstein, for example, you know, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, just tell him to shove it, you know, but it's like a really weird, foggy, scary situation where you're trying to figure out what the heck you're supposed to do. And it's really, really hard to just be like, hey, shove it. And, you know, there's not a lot of examples as a woman of looking at other women standing up to sexual harassment or speaking out about sexual harassment where it went well for them. You know, it seems like most of the times when they went to court or they spoke out in the press, nothing good happened for them. You know, even now, if you look at Bill Cosby very recently was not convicted, even though all those women came forward. um, We don't have a big history of seeing our our needs get met and our voices get heard and like fairness ensue and justice. We, We don't have a long history of of seeing this happen. Do people literally say to you, no one cares about women's stories? There's a, that, that's uh, a character in the movie says that. And I thought like, God, if to be that well, direct, it must have been a thing that actually literally happened. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, they, if they were, if they wouldn't say it in the press, but behind closed doors when you're going, will you make this movie? Uh, you know, m- women's movies don't make money. Nobody cares about women's. Yeah, they say it all the time. And even women will say it because it's just like they've been conditioned by the business that these movies are harder to get made. And the thing is, you know, they rate everyone as like, oh, well, this person can have this amount of money based on this like system they have of how the other movies they've been in and how much money they've made. And also just that women's movies don't, they somehow have decided that women's movies don't make as much money. So they just don't make as many of them. Let's see another scene from Half Magic. And my guess, Heather Graham's character in the movie is a development executive at a a production company who is working on a screenplay. Um, And in this scene, she's in kind of a like a like a writer's room or a development meeting. And she's talking about her distaste for uh, the ideas of this book. movie star in the film named Peter and particularly she's she doesn't care for the the cliche in horror movies where women who've had sex have to be the first one to get killed (laughs) sick of watching women get stabbed in movies well I think it's a great idea Peter I love all your ideas excuse me but why does the woman who enjoys sex always have to die in horror films maybe she could fight back We could work in some more nudity that way. What if the slut fights the killer and every orgasm she has makes her stronger? (laughs) That's funny. I think we should at least try it. Well, you know what, John, I would try that, but I I, I actually, I think that that's probably the worst idea I've ever heard in my entire life, so I probably can't do that one. I like sluts. Why do they all have to die? I mean, nobody kills male sluts in movies. I like sluts, too. Who doesn't like sluts? Maybe one should live. Well... Linda, the thing is, you already approved the draft that I Who wrote, are you? so. I'm a development person. Well, yeah, she was my old assistant until recently I promoted her into development before I realized what an angry feminist she is. Well, she's also a writer, actually, a really good writer. Well, we all write. I want to be a writer. I'm, I'm the young assistant. 
you know, that's confusing. But I like this idea. I think we should explore it. Yeah, Linda, but I Peter, think... Peter, I gave you final cut. No studio is going to offer you that. The slut lives. <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's a part of me that would be willing to spend eight years developing a movie if at the end of it there was the possibility that I could be friends with Rhea Perlman. Isn't she cool? She's oh like God, one of the coolest on... people on earth. Like all I want in the world is to like shake her hand and be like, uh, you cool. That was just like a stroke of, of amazing luck that she agreed to be in the movie. And the day she came to set, I know Angela and Stephanie are both massive fans, right? And we were just all going, this is so cool. She's so cool. When you were uh, preparing to direct this film, um, who did you go to to seek advice or guidance? Um, well, well, my best friend, Michael Nichols, who has produced and directed a lot of movies, he was my main person. I also did, um, you know, I talked to Lake Bell. I met her at a film festival and I asked her about her movie that she directed and just got some advice from her about that. And just anyone that would talk to me, basically, I would ask them um, about their experiences. Lake Bell made such a great movie. I yeah. loved her directing. Yeah. What did you learn from that? I mean, what were the things you, you've been on so, so many sets? You know, you spent your life on sets since you were a teenager. Um, what were the things that you learned in the process of making this film that, uh, you know, had just not come up for you before? Well, one of the things she told me was that she had a really good friend that would watch the takes that she was in and give her, you know, like kind of direct her. And just having that close friend on the set to have your back. So that was my friend Michael. And that that really helped. And um, I think it's just doing something that scares the out of you can be like massively rewarding emotionally. I just feel like it was just so cool to do something that I cared about so much and it was terrifying. And it was also like the more terrifying it is, the more fulfilling. I just felt really good, like doing it. What mistakes did you make when you were making it? Well, I think I overwrote that I had to edit it out after where I should have edited it before. So we would have had more time. And, um, you know, you watch your own acting a lot. So you realize your own acting, you know, flaws after you've watched the same take a million times. Should I ask you to list your acting flaws? <laughs> well, I think sometimes I, I made it like a little t more emotional than it needed to be in moments. Like, I don't know. Um, but it's weird. It's weird watching yourself in your face and it's, it's very can you Like, can you watch it? Like when I hosted a television show, I hated looking at it so much. Oh, my gosh. I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you how much I hated looking at it. Like, it took me a long time to get used to hearing my own voice uh, hosting, doing radio. But, like, seeing myself on screen, I was like, no, 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 never again. Like, that's the worst thing in history. <laughs> it um, is horrifying. And others were kind enough to let me know that it was the worst thing in history, too. <laughs> um, but, like, uh, were you someone who had that relationship with seeing yourself on screen uh, before you directed yourself in a movie? Well, to be honest, sometimes I didn't always watch the movies that I that I acted in because it is weird watching yourself. You can start to go, oh, my God, my forehead is weird or, oh, why do I look ugly? You know, you can get into weird minutia that doesn't really matter. Um, so I, I always try to, like, like let it go and just think, you know what? It's easy to be critical of yourself, so I'm just going to be positive about it. What was it like then to be forced to stare at yourself for months, <laughs> probably, I mean, presume, presumably months, right? Well, it's kind of like, you know how people are taking so many selfies now and everyone takes the selfies and puts it on their Instagram. It's like, it's like, it's kind of horrifying to see yourself, but also I guess you're like, oh, I exist. <laughs> Here's a picture of me. I, I exist. I did this, you know? So there is something fulfilling about just being in your own movie. Like I'm telling a story, like I'm telling a story about something that means something to me and I exist. <laughs> Well, Heather Graham, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be Thank on Thank you. It's so side. fun talking to you. Thanks for all your thoughtful questions and being interested in, in this. Thank you. Heather Graham, ladies and gentlemen. You can find Half Magic in select theaters now and everywhere via VOD. We're just about out of time on this week's Bullseye. But before we wrap up, a culture tip from me. We call it the outshot. So Jeff Garland is a stand-up comic. If you know him, it's probably because he plays Larry David's manager on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's a big guy. He's overweight, kind of middle-aged. 
maybe a little sloppy looking sometimes. And also when he talks, he has a tendency to yell, not like an angry yell. I think that actually just his regular voice is kind of yelly. It's sort of a friendly yell. You know what you are? You're a social assassin. I guess I am in a way. Yeah. How'd it go? Not too good. As soon as I told her she knew Ron had put me up to it. So you bungled the hit. Well, I didn't bungle it. I did what I was supposed to no, do. No, no, you bungled the hit. Why are you saying that? She knew. That's not my fault. It is. Your performance wasn't good enough. You, what do you know about social assassination? I'm the one who named you a social assassin. And we don't want you here at the agency anymore. Okay. Anyway, none of that is particularly what you would imagine if you were thinking of a movie star. But Garland is charming, just immensely charming. And his new movie, which he wrote, directed, and stars in, is charming, too. You know, tonight's the last night I'm going to eat this crap. I mean, no offense to Norm's Burger. I don't mean that your food's crap. It's just it's not good for a guy like me. Yep, this is it. going to start fresh tomorrow. Well, I think that's great. You can be your best self. I can be my best self. Very kind yeah. of you. The movie's called Handsome. It's a detective story, although it's a bit of a backwards detective story since it opens with this. Hi, I'm Stephen Weber. And I play the murderer, thanks, Lyle, in this handsome mystery movie. Enjoy this exciting multi-platform event. That's sort of a Columbo setup. But unlike Columbo, Handsome isn't really about putting together the pieces of the puzzle. This movie isn't a dash for the finish line. It's a gentle stroll down a winding road. Handsome is the name of Garland's character, police detective Gene Handsome. He lives in a little cottage in suburban L.A. It looks kind of like Glendale or maybe South Pasadena. And absolutely nothing can shake the geniality from Gene Handsome's face. Not even a dead woman's body chopped to pieces and rearranged on a movie star's lawn in the shape of a Star of David. Sir, can I quit the force forever, please? You want to quit the force? Yes. Why? Because we're all just sitting here casually talking about this chopped-up woman in this yard, and it's disgusting. We're not casually talking about the lady. We're trying to figure out who did this. Sir, I have a theory. You do? What do you got? Suicide. That's it? That's it. Have you ever seen The Long Goodbye, the Robert Altman movie? It's one of my favorites. It's kind of a loopy detective story. Elliot Gould is the star. Seems like maybe it was a model for Handsome. Just like in The Long Goodbye or in The Big Lebowski, it's another similar movie, the best moments of Handsome are about the detective wandering out into this odd world and kind of prodding gently. Garland's face has this almost constant look on it. It's kind of hard to describe. It's basically, it's like the facial expression equivalent of, well, it takes all kinds, I guess. The whole thing is kind of like a Mike Lee movie if Mike Lee made funny detective movies for the USA Network. I don't even know if that makes sense. There are funny jokes. It isn't super jokey, though. There are laughs, but probably the best part about it are, are these little interactions that are thrillingly, modestly human. You know what I watched the other night? Huh. Best movie I've ever seen. I don't know if you saw it. San Andreas. Oh, I love San Andreas. You're oh, my me? God. The Rock. Perfection. The absurdity. Best absurdity I've ever seen. Maybe one of the best movies. Easily the best. What won the Oscar in 2015 that was better than San Andreas? Best movie ever. And all the time he spent in a boat. He's in a boat, but he's a helicopter pilot. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. What would you do if you had a partner who didn't like how loud... You talk. I don't talk loud. You talk loud. I don't know who talks louder between us, <laughs> you or I. We both talk very loud, and I don't know which one is the louder talking. In the end, nothing changes for Gene Handsome. His life isn't transformed. He basically goes on a trip. He meets some people. He solves a crime, and he ends up where he started. And for some folks, that's not much of a movie, and I get it. If you're looking for a grand adventure or an epic quest... Handsome is not for you. But if you're just looking for 70, 75 minutes of open-hearted companionship, well, then Gene Handsome's your man. Handsome. Yeah. 
All right, pick me up. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our office manager, Daniel Baruela, reports he found a seagull eating SpaghettiOs out of a SpaghettiO can. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. This is Christian's last week on the show. We thank him for his work here at Maximum Fun. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. They're on U.S. tour, I think, right now. So go out and see them if you can. It's a real hoot. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. This week, uh, because we are a sophisticated public radio program, we shared a New Yorker cartoon, uh, the punchline of which involves pooping in a diaper. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 